So looking at our notes, uh, and I'm going to go uh, halfway down page 1 to sub point 5. Thus within this context came the first series of warnings that are delivered to us in this epistle. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. So to drift away on the currents of ideological and the winds of false doctrine. Look at what's going on in the church today. And here's the thing. If you're not doing due diligence, if you're not paying attention, you will drift away. And your drift will take place most often outside of the field of your perception. And so you've drifted away, and you don't become aware of it until God grabs you by the scruff of the neck and shows you how far you've moved from where you need to be. So this happens slowly, gradually, in a subtle manner when we take our focus off of Christ and his call upon our lives. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard them? The reality is, is there's no escaping the chastisement of God if we fail to take our salvation seriously and cooperate with its work to be the top priority of our lives on a daily basis. Okay, so there's one more thing I want to point out. Remember, we looked at some passages in the Old Testament last week that, you know, if God dealt so severely, so severely, with the, with the transgressions and the, the missteps of the law, which was according to you know, what we've read, mediated to Moses through angels or the angel of the Lord, how much more so if we as believers will come under the chastisement of God uh, if we neglect it. So uh, I was reading, I've been reading in 2 Samuel, so... Take your Bibles and turn for a moment to 2 Samuel chapter 6. So in 2 Samuel now, 2 Samuel basically tells the story. 1 Samuel tells the story of, of Eli, uh, Samuel as the first prophet, and then the rise of Saul, so, and then the decline of Saul, the death of Saul. So 1 Samuel closes with the death of Saul and Jonathan, and there's a 10-year period there where Saul is, is, uh, is persecuting David because God, through the prophet Samuel, has announced that no, not only would he not have dynastic rule, which means none of his, none of his sons would sit on the throne, but that he himself had been removed from king from being king and the spirit was taken off of him and put on David so now Saul is after David and so David uh, finally you know upon the death of Saul he's named king and he's excited he's starting to Israel is now starting to experience a period of growth and prosperity that it has not experienced before coming out of you know the the desolation of 300 350 year judges period right where everybody was just doing whatever they wanted to do you know so in second samuel chapter six now david gets a mind he wants to bring the ark which was was it either in shiloh or in hebron i think it was in shiloh but he wants to bring the ark to jerusalem okay so beginning at, i want to i want to see if you can pick this up here 
So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, And David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose, uh, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out with the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill in Uzzah and Ahio, the son of Abinadab, drew the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played music uh, before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir, wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. So obviously they were very happy. This was, David was thrilled that the, he was going to bring the ark to Jerusalem, which prior to his conquest had been a city that was, had been ruled for 500 years by the Jebusites. Now Jerusalem is in the hands of, of Judah and David is going to bring the ark there with the ultimate intent to build a temple for the Lord, a house for the Lord. Okay, so everyone's happy, everyone's festive. Um, the, uh, the ark had been in the house of Abinadab since the, you know, since the time of Saul. Saul's army went out to battle against the Philistines and they, they basically brought the Ark of the Covenant as like a, a magic, a lucky rabbit's foot. But the Ark was captured by the Philistines and brought back into Philista. But after the Ark had circled, you know, through, through a few of their cities, they determined that it had become a pain in the rear. <laughs> and they, you get the joke? You don't Literally. get the joke? Literally, you don't get the joke? So if you read the account in 1 Samuel, so God struck the Philistines with a pestilence of hemorrhoids. And so finally they'd had enough and they called for one of their seers and they put the, they put the ark back on a cart that was drawn by two cows and said if the ark goes back, if the cows start going back to, to Israel, to Judah, then we know that it is of the Lord. So the ark goes back and it goes into the house of Abinadab and it stays there. Now David is wanting to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Okay, so everybody's happy. So pick it up on verse 5 again. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir, wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his error and he died there by the ark of God. Okay, so he died, right? The ark is on a, is on a, 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 an oc, a cart being pulled by oxen and, and the, the terrain that it was going through was rocky and it was hilly so you could see how you know, that could happen. So one of the oxen stumbles, the cart starts to teeter, and Uzzah puts out his hand to stabilize the ark so it doesn't fall over, which you think, would think would be a good thing, right? Because who wants the ark of the covenant to topple over and spill out all of its contents on the ground? But God got angry and struck Uzzah and killed him right there on the spot. Why? Bill? He was a Levite. He was a Levite. Yes. Maybe 
Excuse me? Uh, well, that's a possibility. Later on, when, when David says, uh, you know, God sends Nathan, I think it's Nathan the prophet, to, to uh, David and said, no, no, you're not going to build a house for me. Your son is going to build a house for me. All right. Okay. All right. So why was God upset about here? And the reason why I want to, I want to spend the time here, because this really perfectly illustrates what can happen when the warning of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, is ignored. It happens outside of the field of human perception, is drifting away. So there, were, there was a comedy of a couple of big, really big errors that took place here. But the point being is they were, they were not intentional error. Okay, so who, who has an idea? Doug? Um, ultimately, because the sinful guy touched the ark. Okay, John? That's right. Turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 4. Well, well, when they have, well, you're going to read, they have faith, right? But does anybody ever touch? Well, yeah. When when the ark went back to Israel from Philistia, you had those yodels who were curious and they wanted to see what was in the ark, so they popped the lid and God struck fifty thousand of them dead with a pestilence. Right. So from, right. from the viewpoint of the law, it seems to me that no. None of, look at Numbers chapter 4. The, the, the Levites and, they, and, you, and the handling of the holy things was divided. And they were not allowed to touch them or handle them. That's what I thought. Numbers chapter 4. So in Numbers chapter 4, we'll start at verse 5. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of badger skins and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue, and they shall insert its poles. On the table of showbread they shall spread a blue cloth and put it and put it the dishes, put on it the dishes, the pans, the bowls, the pitchers for pouring, and the showbread shall be on it. They shall spread over them a scarlet cloth and cover the same with a covering of badger skins and they shall insert its poles. You see that? They're covered and then there are poles inserted. And they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand of the light with its lamps, its wick trimmers, its trays and all of its vessels which they shall, with which they service it. Then they shall put it with all its utensils in a covering of badger skins and put it on what? A carrying beam over the golden altar. Well, anyway, so you get, you, get the, uh, you get the drift. Now skip down to verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any of the holy things lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of the meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. So, number one, they were to be carried, right? Points to what you observed. 
they put it on on an oxen cart, which they were not permitted to do, which led to now the second the second infraction where because they weren't carrying it in the way that they were supposed to carry it by the poles, right? It was unsteady, and now as the, as the cart teetered, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady it, and he touched it. There's the second violation, and he died right there. Now, here's the thing. Why didn't they know that? They were Levites. And why didn't David know that? You see? Which bespeaks of the ignorance of the law at that age. Right? And so it all seems to slip away. And so now the ark goes to someplace else, the house of Obed-Edom, and while it's there, you know, his household is greatly blessed. And then uh, the next time now, as you read it, you'll see the Levites are carrying the ark. So you can suppose that when the Philistines have captured the ark, it starts rifting on their knowledge of what they do with the ark. That they're not always there doing these rituals, etc. No, and as a matter of fact, you have that whole 300, 350 year period of judges, right, that is the intervening period between Joshua. So Joshua is kind of like first, second generation after Moses. And then you have 300, 350 years where you have the period of Judges and Ruth, and then you move into 1 Samuel, right? And so from then on, you have that, that period was essentially a period of darkness. It, it really was. I mean, and all that time, they're, they're beginning to engage in human sacrifice and do all of the things that they're not supposed to be doing. So by the time they get to this, even though David's intentions were good, and... and the Uzzahs too, because they was because there was an infraction of the way God has specified it, there was a consequence, and that consequence was irrevocable. Uzzah died. David, if you read on, he got angry, and you know, and the ark goes, you know, to the house of Obed Edom and stays there for some time, so on and so forth. And then he learns the lesson, and then the next time they move it, they move it in the right way. So that really illustrates. How we, you know, we, we trifle with the things of God. I mean, we do. We trifle with the things of God, and we don't take them as seriously as we need to. Uh, and the Old Testament is there to show us that the drift happens outside of the field of your perception. I'm sure if David knew that it needed to be carried in a specific way, that he would have done it that way because the scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart. And I'm sure that the Levites would have too. The, it, it, this could only happen because they had become, over the course of time, ignorant. They let those things slip and they drifted away. That's what the author of Hebrews, that's the point exactly that he's trying to make in Hebrews chapter 2. Okay, all right, so there. Now let's pick it up on the point B, on page 1. So Hebrews chapter 2 is all about the need to be dead to get to heaven. Specifically, this chapter is the writer's explanation of why the Lord of all creation had to take a form less than angels and die as a man. 
And he brings to the mind of his readers the Old Testament passages that substantiate what he is saying. Now notice he does this by using the Old Testament scriptures in context. Right? When he quotes an Old Testament passage, he doesn't remove it and, and change its meaning to, <clears throat> to reinforce a point that he's trying to make. He always uses it in its he always uses it as an example in its proper context. Right? And so that's important. That's like one of the prime rules of apologetics. You gotta make sure that if you're gonna lift scripture out to make a point that you're using it within its proper context. And so he demonstrates to them by using these passages in the proper context that that's what these Old Testament passages were pointing to right from the start. You see? Okay. In other words, his assertions are, in fact, what the scriptures assert in the passages he quotes. This is the way we should all approach apologetics. Apologetics means the process of making reasoned arguments in justification of religious doctrines or viewpoints, proving what you believe is true. The Bible is our proof, not our experiences or feelings or heritage or tradition. Okay. So let's move on now over to page two. All right, so to kind of, all right, I'm trying to think if I should go through this or just let you guys read this on your own. Well, let me, let me, let me, uh, let's look in Hebrews. Let's go a little bit there, a little ways there. So let's pick it up in Hebrews chapter two, verse five. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. And so, and so I thought to myself, why is he, what is his reason for, for launching into the necessity of Christ having to be made lower than the angels? Why is he launching into it with this? Well, uh, there's, there's a couple of reasons. So I pull this again out of Chabad.org and, and there were rabbinical schools who believed and who still believe that the world, well, let me just read it to you. Okay, this, is, this comes from their website. It says, where did the 70 nations come from? All right. Uh, the 70, so it goes into an explanation of the 70 languages the concept of there being 70 languages is found in various passages of the Talmud and Midrash. For example, example, the Talmud tells us that when God gave the Torah on Sinai, his word was spoken in 70 languages, and Moses translated the Torah into 70 languages before he died. The 70 languages can be inferred from the Bible itself. After detailing the descendants of Noah, the Bible turns to the incident known as the Tower of Babel. Now the entire earth was of one language and uniform words, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And the Lord said, lo, they are one people and they all have one language. Come, let us descend and confuse their language so that one will not understand the language of his companion. And the Lord scattered them from there upon the face of the entire earth and they ceased building the city. These verses come immediately after the Torah gave a detailed list of exactly 70 descendants of Noah. We can therefore infer that the Torah in, 
Torah's intention is to tell us that each of those 70 descendants of Noah then spawned a clan, each of which spoke its own language. And then it goes on and says, the Midrash describes what happened as follows. When man built the Tower of Babel, God called out to 70 ministering angels and said, let us confuse their tongues into 70 nations and 70 tongues and let us cast lots. They cast lots with each angel representing one nation and the lot of Abraham fell upon God. So, so they believed that in the dispersal of the nations, God placed in authority over each nation state an angel. So they believed that in times past. And point of fact, we do have some passages in the scripture that indicate that there may be some validity to that, don't we? Michael the Prince. So there's the, there's the whole Daniel and there seems to be a reference to it in Deuteronomy chapter 32. But not only did they believe that, but they also believed, some rabbinical schools believed, that in the world to come or in the messianic kingdom, that angels would be given jurisdiction over the nations. So that's why, and they knew that, they, that's, it was common knowledge to them, that's why the author launches into this discourse with what it says in verse 5 again, where it says, for he has not put the world to come, right? If you, if you, speak, to, if you speak to an observant Jewish person, when, when they don't use the term heaven, the term that they use is the world to come. That is a Jewish term. They don't use heaven, they say the world to come, right? That's their concept because they don't believe that heaven is up there. They believe that heaven is here on the earth, right? And so they call it the world to come. All right. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the work of your hands, and you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now what that is, that is a quote of Psalm 8. So let's go to Psalm 8 in our Bibles. And notice how the author points out that indeed, Psalm 8 is a messianic psalm, and there is a specific reference to the Messiah in Psalm 8. Okay, Psalm 8. O Lord, is everyone there? I'll wait till everyone gets there. I'm going to start at verse 1, Psalm 8. Okay. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens and the work of your hands, the fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? So now the author of Hebrews, as he quotes this, is using that first reference to humankind. So it could be read, what is humankind 
that you are mindful of him. But notice what it says in the second half of that. It says, and the son of man that you visit him. So from the second hand, second half of verse 4 down to uh, verse, verse 8 is now referring to the Messiah, son of, son of man, which is a term that is applied only to the Messiah, and you'll find that in the book of Daniel, the son of man. What is man or what is humankind that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you, would, you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. So, so as he quotes this, he points out to them that, in fact, Psalm 8 speaks to not only humankind, but it also speaks to the human, the human Messiah, the human divine Messiah, the Son of Man, and that the Son of Man was made a little lower than the angels. Now, the little lower is in in nature right because he's he's human and as a human he had limitations that angels do not have right angels angels are i use the term transdimensional right they have the ability to move through dimensions they have if you read in ephesians chapter 6 their their primary abode appears to be the celestial heavens, right? So they have the ability to travel between the celestial heavens, the earth, and, and even on occasion into, into the, the throne room of God, right? So Jesus in his humanity did not have that capability. So he was made a little lower in his nature than angels, but yet... You have crowned him with glory and honor and have set him over the work of your hands and you have put all things in subjection under his feet. So now it's important to understand this not only from the perspective of the Messiah as the son of man. The Messiah as the son of man only took back what God had given to man in his creation but forfeited it. In other words... So Israel was promised that as long as they obeyed, fulfilled their end of the covenant, they would remain in the land. That if they did not fulfill the terms of the covenant, God would expel them from the land. But they would never lose possession of the land because the land had been given to them under the Abrahamic covenant. So while they were no longer in they, while they were no longer in possession of the land, they still retained ownership over the land. You get that? So the same holds true for the entire race. When, when Satan caused or participated in the fall of Adam and Eve, he usurped their authority. So humanity, in a sense, is they're not in possession and if you read there, that, I mean, think about this for a moment. Back in Hebrews, actually Psalm 8. Let's go to Psalm 8, back to Psalm 8. Because this is astounding here when you stop and think about it for a moment. In Psalm 8, 
starting at verse 6. You have made him to have dominion over the work of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. And so, so man, when he was created, all things were put under his dominion, and he forfeited that. Now, he's no longer in possession because Satan usurped his authority, but he still retains ownership. And it was necessary for Christ, to, for the Messiah to come in, a, in human form so that he could take back possession of, owner of the land for humanity. Yes, Doug? Yes. Well, it says all things. So what is... What all things would be everything that is created. Everything that is created. So when you, when you think about that, then you can kind of... And, and the Talmud and the Jewish writings make a case that this is, ex this is exactly what caused the angelic rebellion. Right. It's because man, because man was a, a lesser creature than angels and yet angels were put under the dominion of men right so so it was necessary number one we'll, we'll get to the second reason next week but number one that Christ the Messiah the Savior had to assume had to come in the form of a human so that he could take back possession of what mankind had lost possession of when Satan usurped his authority. You with me so far? Okay, all right. All right, so that's where, now um, let's break off into the notes and let's, let's take a look at this as we consider the concept of federal headship. So let's turn to page two. And it says sovereignty granted. So Christ comes to win back sovereignty over the creation that God had granted to humankind. All right. So in Genesis chapter 1, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So man, so some, some terms there. In God's Im image, man was to be a reflection to the creation of how God ruled over all things as sovereign, justice, equity, righteousness, and mercy. So God was to image, man was to image God in the way that he ruled over the dominion that God had granted to him when God created him, and that was over all his creation, right? And he was to be fruitful, that is, his rule over the earth was to be one of benefit and blessing, not only to him, but all of earth's inhabitants. Men and women together 
would reflect God's attributes. Neither one could accomplish this on their own. And they were to multiply, which was to fill the earth, thus performing their work of occupying. So it's interesting that if you look at the six days of creation, the first three days, God creates space. The second three days, he fills the space. Go take a look at that. The first three days of creation, he creates space. And the second three days, he fills the space that he created in the first three days. So part of that was that man was to, they were to multiply and fill the earth. Okay. Sovereignty lost in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 to 19. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. So Eve was deceived. Adam willfully disobeyed. It's pretty interesting when you look at it, it appears that God does not really charge Eve with wrong because she was deceived. But Adam willfully disobeyed. So, you know, there are all kinds of things that, that I've read when I've read Jewish writings. So where was Adam, you know? Why wasn't he with his wife, you know? And uh, then this interesting, interesting midrash that I read on it said that when you go and read the account, Eve says, when the serpent asked her, Eve said, no, we're not to eat of it. We're not even to touch the tree. But that was not given in the original prohibition, was it? Just said, don't eat it. So according to this midrash, Adam, to make sure that his wife didn't get near the tree, he's like, don't eat the fruit. Don't even touch the tree. So Satan seized upon that lie, seized upon that lie, took Eve's hand, touched it to the tree, and said, see, you didn't die. It's all a lie. That's an interesting midrash. So it's humorous. Anyway, the point being is that Eve was deceived, but Adam willfully disobeyed. And thus the environment was removed from under his control. It would no longer yield easily its bounty. Eve and all her daughters were placed in a relationship with her and their husbands, where they would be constantly vying for their husband's attention and notice. True to form or what? True to form or what? Okay. And control over the affairs of mankind were placed under the rule of Satan. In the temptation, there's the familiar passage where Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, where Satan tries to, to tempt Christ to bow down and worship him. And he says to him in Luke chapter 4, verse 6, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil says, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. So possession of, possession of, the, of the creation was, was taken out of man's hand and was placed under Satan's control. But man never lost ownership of it. But that's why it was necessary for Christ to come as a human to come back and assert man's ownership and possession and defeat Satan. Okay. 
The son, in his federal headship, restores rule to redeem mankind. Verse 5 again says, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. The creation is not put in subjection to the angels. The writer introduces a quote from Psalm 8 by saying that angels are never appointed to rule over the kingdom to come. Thus, the Jewish, the Jewish and the Midrashic translations that we read are incorrect scripturally. Right? Because angels were never appointed to rule over mankind. All right. The psalm says it will be ruled by the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a messianic term found in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. That word world, uh, the, the, you can, this was, I think we looked at this word in our Bible study methods class, right? And that word world there is the word from which we derive the word economy. It's the system of arrangement or mode of operation or functioning in a country, area, or period. Thus, the usage of the word world here is with a view as to its functioning and arrangement and management, which was not entrusted to angels, but to mankind, right? All the way back in Genesis. Man was the one who was to, to, uh, to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it, and he was the one who was called to give names to all of the different, all the different species of animals. This was not entrusted to angels. Why is the world so messed up? Because Satan, a spirit being of angelic order, which I don't agree with, I don't think he's an angel, usurped man's authority and has since been running or managing the world. Only man can correctly manage this. Now think about that. If God created the universe and then he created man and placed man in dominion over the creation, then the, the creation and the universe cannot function properly until it's functioning under the dominion of mankind. Think about that, right? So that'd be kind of like, you know, you design a Ferrari, who's supposed to drive a Ferrari? A human being. Well, what happens if you put a kangaroo behind the wheel of that Ferrari. Well, he can probably get it to go, but it's not going to function in the way that a human for whom it's designed can make it function. You see? And so this is, this is necessary. Uh, this is why it's necessary. Uh, Pastor, I have a question. Yes. Okay. I don't want to go on a rabbit trail, but this is actually a point. I'm actually curious if you got my interest on this. Speaking of dominion, get into a big, long discussion on this, but I do want to get your take on it. Um, our post-millennial brothers will argue that we are to take dominion based on Christ having conquered. You know, and so their goal is really kind of establishing schools, you know, changing the laws of the land as best as possible to, since God has given us that right under Christ, I mean, your take on that, I guess I want to kind of... It's false teaching. It's false teaching because man cannot do what only God can do. All that man can do is make it worse. I mean, if there's any, and that, again, look at, look at the kingdom, the theocratic kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. It just never gets better. The kingdom can only come with the return of the Messiah. It can only come. 
right? And so what do you do with, the, with all the prophetic scripture? You say, well, it's already happened. Well, let me tell you, let me ask you something. And you don't need to be a theologian to figure this out. Is the world getting better in the 2,000 years that the church has been here? Matter of fact, is the church getting better in the 2,000 years that it's been here? And if you look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it foretells that the church would be right where it is today just prior to the rapture, right? So you tell me how the church is going to transform. You know, that, that was a, that's what actually led to the, the fundamentalist controversy in the early 1900s is because there were, there were the, the mainline denominations who thought that they could bring about a golden age of humanity through social activity and social action, right? And so, so they would be the perfect thing to look at. So let's look at the mainline denominations today. Let's look at the United Churches of Christ. Let's look at the United Methodist Church. Let's look at these churches. They're not even churches anymore. I don't know what they are, but they're not churches because there is a fundamental axiom in the scripture and you find it in, in the book of Haggai, right? You cannot pass on holiness through contact. You cannot do it. Why? Because holiness can only come as an act of divine grace. It can only come as an act of divine grace. So you cannot contract holiness by coming into contact with holiness, but you can contract defilement by coming into, con into contact, which, that, which is profane. So it's always a one-way street. It's never a two-way street. It's always a one-way street. And you know that. How many people have you been able to pass holiness on to by being into contact with them? But how many times have you been in contact with those who are walking in the opposite direction from holiness have actually actually brought you into a place of compromise because that's always the way it goes so if we apply that to individuals I'll get to you in a minute if we apply that to individuals then we must apply it also to society and, and humankind in general that holiness can only come when it comes as an act of God's grace and God is, he's got a specific plan that he's going to bring that on through. And it involves Israel. And it involves taking the world and humanity through hard lessons. Look at the hard lessons that, that you know, the, the patriarchs went through. You look at Abraham. We think of Abraham as a guy who, you know, he lived in tents, he had a couple of camels, maybe a goat or two. But you know, when Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, he was actually living in one of the largest metropolises on planet Earth of the day. And he was a wealthy man. And he's told to leave your family and get out and wander about. And, and he, he lived the rest of his life as a nomad, living in tents. He could have at any time said, you know what, I'm done with this. Think of the hardship. But look, and so when you look at, when you look at Abraham, you look at not only his high points, but you look at the low points too. 
that whole mess with Hagar, you know, and Ishmael, and Egypt. She's my sister, not my wife, you know? And so you learn, you see how God takes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he takes them on this walk where, where he puts them in hard times and in hard places because it's in those hard times and hard places that they're confronted with the things in themselves that need to change. And he's doing the same thing on a national level with Israel. He's doing the same thing on a Pentecostal level with the church. And he's doing the same thing on a species level with humanity. God has a plan that he's going to work. And man basically does what God wants him to. I don't know if that answers your question. You obviously know that I'm not a dominionist. Right? No, no, I know that. You know that. But I'm not talking about dominionists in particular. There's, there's definitely a difference between dominionists, which is a certain demographic of Christianity, and then... But the, ult- but the ultimate aim is still the same, that it's humanity that brings about the Messianic Age or the Golden Age. And that's exactly what Judaism believes as well, you know. Mm-hmm. You know? That so, certainly at the other end of the spectrum, we've been given the work of the gospel and of making disciples. Yeah. But should we also, for lack of a better word, dabble in trying to repair the room? Which, which, is, which is a step towards what he was talking no. about. No. No. Not at all. No. Like Why? Try to make because our because better? because the world is doing what? Heading to hell. It's passing away. Yeah. It's temporary. It's passing away. I mean. Obviously, we're to be the salt and light of the world, right? So I try and be the salt and light of the world, right? I, I don't... I'm, I'm very careful about doing things like lifting up a word or anything against the Lord's anointed, right? You like our president or not, he's the Lord's anointed. Don't touch him. You don't touch him. Be very careful about speaking critical of him. Because God is paying attention to that, right? So I'm very careful. So I try and be the salt and light in that way. But do I think I'm going to reform society? No. And there's no reforming to it. Why? Because it is from its greatest expanse to its smallest particle, it's been corrupted and has to be done away with. See, that because man was placed in dominion over all of God's creation, when man fell, the entire creation fell. The entire creation has now has to be done away with. And that's why the Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And so we look and move towards that because what we see, the world, it's all passing away. It's going to go away. Right? So having said that, should we take a stand against things like abortion? Absolutely. Absolutely. We take a stand for those things that we know are in accordance with. That's right. And, and look at, you know, look at what happened at Nineveh, right, under the preaching of Jonah. They were given like another 20 years or so, right, before God finally entered into judgment with them. But they repented, right? So, so. 
I don't, I don't, I, my choice is I don't see from the scripture where I would engage in political reform or any of those things because I think, I think that it's a waste of time. So fundamentally, any kind of reform in society is going to come through evangelism. Yeah. Through people coming to Christ. Well, God doesn't right, but you have to take that into, into consideration and calibrate it by what prophetic scripture says is coming. So look from that point of view, look at the, the Mennonites. They don't even vote. They said there's no point. So they don't even believe in voting. Why? Why, why do you think the Mennonites don't believe in voting? First of all, aside from if anyone believes that elections are fair anymore, then I got a bridge I want to sell you. But aside from that, why don't the Men why don't you believe the Mennonites don't believe in voting? Why, why don't I believe that? Why don't they believe in oh. voting? But they ultimately understand what the scripture says, that this world is passing away. It's passing away. It's destined to destruction. So, so that because of that. So, well, so then, so, so I guess that stance, I'm just saying, if we all we took that assertion, then we shouldn't even vote. That is your choice. No, I understand that. But saying I've, made a, I've made a particular choice on that, right, personally. And I wouldn't try and impose that on anybody else, right? And when I, when, I, when I made that choice, I make it in view of the fact what I've seen happen lately and what I see the scriptures say, no matter, here's the thing, we're the salt and light of the world and God is going to use us to call out who he's going to call out of the world in however much time is remaining before the rapture of the church, right? And you can be the salt and light of the world and you can have a positive impact in your places of employment in your social circles all of those things but don't for a moment think that you're going to be able to somehow redeem creation from what God has determined it will go and don't for a moment think that you can somehow redeem this nation because there's only one nation ever that has been chosen by God and that is Israel all other kingdoms are by definition evil kingdoms. And any degree to which God has blessed them, their blessing has been based upon how they treated the one chosen nation, Israel. But where are we at now with Israel? So the point is, is no matter what, if we believe that the scriptures are infallible, that they're inerrant, then everything that you see is going to be burned up. Your body has to die. Your body cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because it's corrupted by sin. Unless we're living at the time of the rapture and you happen to be part of that group that gets changed in the twinkling of an eye. Yes, Doug? So reasonably, it's a good thing to stand up for biblical principles. Sure. It's a good thing to stand up against anti-Semitism. Sure. Right? And those are worthwhile things if you have the opportunity. But it's not the primary objective for us. No. The primary objective is to evangelize and make disciples. 
Yeah, and, and God has placed the church here to be the moral conscience of the nation, right? I mean, how can you consider a country, a Christian nation, that has performed 62 million child sacrifices? Make no mistake about it, abortion is child sacrifice. It's sacrifice to the God of mammon. I'm surprised, and I've said this to Pastor Roman, I'm surprised the fire and brimstone hasn't already come down on us. We're, we're way worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes. Could you say those? No. Why? Because we're commanded to render unto Caesar the thing that is Caesar. So if you refuse to pay your taxes, now you've got a problem with God. Right? So pay your taxes, right? Because now you're going to have a problem with God, right? So you render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, right? And so what they, they're the ones who are going to be, and under the Noahic Covenant, government is going to be held accountable and I think we, you know I mentioned this to you the other day you know everybody was hoping for this big revelation with you know the the, the trial of the Clinton lawyer and finally we're gonna see justice no justice he gets off but you know what justice will come justice will come when Shiloh comes and everyone who's been placed in authority in civil, under the civil ministry, according to the dictates of the Noahic Covenant, will be held accountable for what they do. And how they've, just like Pastor Roman, just like me, anyone who's, who stands up and presumes to teach God's word, is going to be held accountable for how they fulfilled their role, so too with those who are entrusted with the civil ministry. They're going to be held accountable. But make no mistake about it. This is all going away. There will be a thousand year golden age of humanity when Messiah rules from Jerusalem on the Davidic throne. But even after that, when Satan is loosed but for a minute, he manages to lead millions if not billions into revolt again against the Messiah who's physically ruling from Jerusalem. Yes, Mark. So we were actually talking a little bit about this An extreme to what? Nothing matters. Everything's going away. There's no point. Why, you know, you live your life. It doesn't matter. I, I think there's an extreme to that where you basically throw your hands up and say, eh, oh well. Um, I, I don't, I, I think realizing that this is all going away, and this is not our home, we're passing through, we're on a pilgrimage, is is the right way to view it, but I also don't think like, you know, living your life to where, in such a way where you're attempting to make things better is bad. So, I mean, you have to, you have, that's kind of like a, a very subjective statement. So, I get up, I work, I pay my taxes, I treat people with kindness. If I see a homeless person, not only will I give them money, but I'll also give them gospel tracts. 
So I, I, when, when someone reaches out to me for help, whether it's financial or spiritual or psychological help, I will give it to them. But I don't have any, any misconceptions that I'm somehow going to reform society. And I'm not, I'm not interested in reforming society. I am just passing through. And, you know, and, and that's who I am. I'm just passing through. And I don't think, I don't think that's extreme. I think that's basically, this is what the Bible says, right? Now, having said that, I, I really do work hard to obey every ordinance of Caesar, right? I pay my taxes. I worry about things like that. I want to make sure I do those things right. I make sure about criticizing you know, political leaders. I do all of those things. So I try and, and live out what the Bible says I need to live out within the context of the ecclesia, the church, but also within the social construct of the society that I live in. But I'm not trying to reform society, nor am I interested in doing it, because I believe what the Bible says, that this is transitory, it's passing away. Yeah, why? Because the church is not passing away. <laughs> the church is going to glory, right? So, so I'm, my concern is with the church because the church is really far deep in apostasy now. And, you know, I'm seeing this firsthand as I visit churches every other week, and it's like, you know, I go to one church, and it's like being at a, a Black Sabbath concert, well, not that extreme, but, you know, with smoke and boom and this and that and, you know, and the pastor's talking and he's somehow manages to give a summary on the book of Revelation without mentioning the word hell once. Okay? First of all, give the summary of the book of Revelation in a 20-minute sermon? It took me a year to preach through it. A year of Sundays to preach through it. And then, so, so that's what concerns me, is that God's people, see, and here's where we are again. Look at what happened to David, and look at what happened to Uzzah. They were bad. They, their intentions were good, but they were ignorant of the requirements of the law, and God held them accountable. The same holds true for the church today. Believer, God holds you accountable Wow, for what's in this book. And so you better make sure that whoever is teaching you is teaching you this word. If they're not teaching you this word, if they're not causing you to struggle to understand this word, then you need to get to a place where that happens because God is going to hold you accountable for everything that's in this book. And you can't plead ignorance because that's not an excuse. You'll never find anywhere in the scripture where ignorance of what God has said we should be doing is a get-out-of-jail-free card. Never. Not one single time. Yes? So, like you, I look at how I'm gifted, the talents God's given me, what he's given me under my control. 
and I look at what I can do good with along the lines of these books. And, and sometimes you have opportunities that you take in the culture that's not going to necessarily bear good fruit, but you're, you're acting towards people like God acts towards, towards us. Right? So I get where you're coming from. It's, it's not satisfying with man's thinking. No. But the world is passing away. It's all destined to get burned up. What did the patriarchs, look at, look at the patriarchs, and we'll get to this in, later on here in the book of Hebrews, that they considered themselves to be foreigners and strangers, refugees, pilgrims, just what? Passing through. That's why they didn't settle down anywhere. They never put down roots because they said, this isn't my home. Where they could exercise godly influence, they did. But they never had any delusions about being able to transform the culture or the society they were in. Lot tried it. And look what happened to him. But, but many believers made a big impact in the society. Daniel being one of them. David being another. I mean, obviously we have, a, a, for lack of a better term, dominion. My dominion's my home, right? God's yeah. responsible for that. Yeah. And then for us as yeah. elders in the church, the church. I mean, you wanna you wanna reform society? Go for it. You wanna you wanna get involved in politics? Go for it. I'm not saying that you're wrong for doing that. I'm saying it from my, you're asking me from my perspective. My perspective is I'm just passing through. And those things for me would be a distraction. That's not the call in my life. The call in my life is to make whatever impact I can in the church with however much time God has left me here during this sojourn, during this pilgrimage. But I would caution you to what um, uh, to, uh, Spurgeon said about politics. He said that if he ever found a Christian politician, that he would have him stuffed because it would be the first time that he had ever really encountered one. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not running for politics, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not saying, like, oh, I'm going to go run for mayor of Springfield. Um, I'm just saying I don't think it's bad. A way that you can stand up for what you believe in and, and speak to sin is, is voting for something. I don't think voting is wrong. No. I think, you know, helping a charity is wrong to try to clean up a neighborhood or something like that. Um, so, all I'm saying, and I'm not saying this was you, I was just saying, I think there's an extreme that says, well, blanket, who cares? Mm -hmm. um, we're all, this place is going to hell anyway. I'm just going to go to my church, do my thing, and that's it. Yeah. And, and so, I'm not saying I didn't say that was well, you. Well, no, and you can't, because that's, that, what you've just, first of all, what you've just defined whether any of those actually exist or not that may be a straw man right um, but that that person is I would have serious doubts about that person's conversion because we're not called to do that to just go to church and and that's a that is a problem within the church today by the way is we come into the church we should be going out from the church right so that's where it needs to start. If we want to make any kind of impact on society, 
we need to stop coming in and start going out. The coming in needs to be, needs to be balanced with the going out. Right now, all we're doing is coming in. We're not doing a whole lot of going out, right? And there are ways that the church can do that. And if we would do that on faith, then God would respond, right? So there's a way that we can impact society. But you're never going to turn planet Earth into the kingdom of heaven. No, but there's, there's to, to Mark's point, and I think this is where the two intersect, right? All things are sacred for believers. I know we talked about this. To where, for me, I mean, I go with gusto going, hey, you know what? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's what, that's what Christ promised Peter. I'm a member of the church. That applies to me, right? That essentially is a promise made to us. Obviously, the promise is in regards to disciples, making disciples. The world is not, so he's not going to be able to stop the impact that the gospel has on those that God has called to himself. You know, so obviously there's going to be points of intersection. We have that here in the school. That's a point of intersection for us. Yeah. Right? And we know that that goes beyond just us running a school. There's a gospel intent here, too. Right. So, so as a believer, you have a twofold mandate. One, you're to announce the impending judgment of God. Right? Paul talks about that, right, in Corinthians. He says, I speak the same word wherever I go. To some, I am the aroma of life leading to life, but to others, I'm the stench of death. Because so you, you speak and you are declaring God's impending judgment on individuals, on the cosmos, actually. But you're also the voice that, in announcing the judgment, you're also announcing that there is a way of escape. And that way of escape is through Christ Jesus. And at the end of it all, at the end of it all, you will only be successful with those whom God has appointed you to be successful with. Not one more, not one less. And the age will end, this age will end, and the rapture will take place when the last believer has been brought into the household of faith. So, I... I'm not saying that, you know, I'm saying for me, when I look at the scripture, I see it's all going away. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm limiting my involvement to those things. First of all, I'm 64 years old, so I'm an old man, right? I'm not going to be running for office. That all of the kingdoms of the world right now are under the dominion and under the authority of Satan, pure and simple. So the best that I can hope for, and I think the best that anybody can hope for, is to stand as a, a Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, right? He stood there and he was declaring, he was declaring what? He was declaring the sins of the society. He was declaring the impending judgment of God. And he was declaring that they still had a short window of opportunity to repent. If they didn't repent, the judgment of God was going to fall very shortly down upon them. 